Hi everyone, welcome to episode 12 of Gather Around, the podcast series sharing stories from Aberdeen Archives, Gallery and Museums. In this episode, Museum Assistant Karen talks about transport, travel and days out in Aberdeen. Welcome to my podcast, Transport and Holidaying to Aberdeen, the silver city with the golden sands. Until the arrival of trains and the introduction of cheap train tickets, coach horse travel was the most widely used option and affordable only to the wealthier classes. Not only was it expensive, it was time-consuming as well as very uncomfortable. Roads were often congested, too narrow or extremely dangerous. Passengers were often injured in coach collisions and many transported goods were damaged. During the 19th century, a new horse appeared within society. These iron horses or steam trains threatened the livelihood of horse-drawn carriage and stagecoach owners. These terrifying monsters were often reviled in posters and newspapers around the country. However, this new mode of travel was eagerly embraced by many. Industrialists, for example, realised this mode of travel for the transporting of goods would aid their commercial businesses dramatically. Distances once seen as too far were now within easy reach and goods once sold locally could now reach different parts of the country in hours. The earliest tracks were laid by mine owners and they were used to transport coal to and from mines and other goods needed for the mining industries. Road and canal transportation could no longer compete with these powerful speedy engines and railway mania began. Lines and stations were erected in most all villages, towns and cities throughout Britain during the Victorian period. Over £3 billion were spent on building stations between the years 1845 and 1900. The first passenger train line in Scotland was named the Kilmarnock and Troon Railway and it opened in 1808. By 1870, 16,000 miles of track was now laid around Britain, and passenger numbers totaled 423 million. Less than 30 years later, a billion train journeys had been made, and railways had now not only transformed the landscape, but the culture of Britain. However, these iron horses did have setbacks for travellers. Railway companies at first only wanted the most elite, the most wealthy passengers to ride their trains and supplied first and second class carriages only. First class passengers had the luxury of travelling in lit carriages while those in second class were seated on hard wooden bench seats with open carriages that let the elements in. Here's a fun fact. It is claimed that Queen Victoria was so terrified of these new high-speed trains, she demanded drivers stick to a 40 mile per hour speed limit while she travelled. However, express trains, usually at this time, normally went at speeds of 80 miles per hour. What the other passengers who travelled on these trains with her thought one cannot say, but I can guess many would have been disgruntled. I can't imagine, though, they complained loudly. Who would dare protest at a Queen's direct order, or worse, defy her wishes? Thanks to the later Railway Act of 1844, 
all trains were now required to cater for third class passengers. These working poor passengers, however, saw no luxury in their travel as their carriages were like cattle trucks, open to the elements, unlit and unheated. Due to unlit areas and no connecting corridors, crime became a worry for these passengers. Reports of lone travellers being physically attacked and robbed were numerous. The first murder on a railway took place on a train travelling to Fenchurch Street on the North London Railway Line in 1864. The murder shook society and by 1866 the Railway Regulations Act introduced a bill stating that communication cords were to be installed for passenger use within all carriages in case of danger. Carriages at this time were now also enclosed, lit and heated. This must have been a huge luxury for passengers and the new safety measures surely helped lower railway crime. When the railway came to Aberdeen, a station was erected firstly within the area of Ferry Hill. On the 16th of March 1850, the first steam locomotive pulled into the station. Its public service, however, didn't commence until the 1st of April of that very same year. As the station was out of the city centre, passengers had to use luggage vans and omnibuses to transport themselves into the city. The city's population at this time was 75,000 and the skyline was dotted with mills and manufacturers selling goods from stone to fish, cattle and grain. Aberdeen's first carriages were made of wood, over six feet long each and weighed nine ton. They were painted a dark brown with yellow lettering on the outside. Each of them had three compartments, with the first classes enjoying upholstered seats and oil lamps to light these spaces. Third class passengers shared hard wooden benches with one oil lamp between 40 people. It wasn't until 1830 third class passengers enjoyed padded seating. This station was later replaced by a new station in Guild Street. Opening in August 2nd, 1854, this temporary station was the main public transport in and out of the city for the next 168 years. Aberdeen added another station within its city limits, one located in Waterloo Quay. It too became the main line out to Keith. In 1867, these two stations combined and was renamed the Joint Station. This station held twice-weekly excursions to Speyside, but the station then left a lot to be desired. It was proclaimed smelly, cramped and full of undesirables by the well-to-do passengers. Trains continued to be a popular mode of transportation, and by the 1950s, Aberdeen's Guild Street Station had a, now a total of 13 platforms. Here, commuters could travel to Glasgow, Edinburgh, Inverness, Peterhead, Ellen and Inverurie. The freedom and pleasure it must have brought to the people of Aberdeen and the Shire. Speedy steam-powered trains took the working-class masses also to explore its historic towns and cities and beaches and amusements. These day trips would have been, for many, the highlight of their year. The working classes then worked very long hours, for very little money and had little or none left over to spend on leisure and amusement. This all changed thanks 
to a Parliament Act named the Ten Hours Act of 1847. It lessened hours of work to 58 hours a week, which still to us in society today seems an exhausting amount of hours to work. However, for workers then, it now meant if they had spare wages, they could now take a public holiday and go on a day trip for leisure opportunities. It was also thanks to the Victorians that bank holidays were introduced into our society. The dates of modern bank holidays come from traditional festivals based on the seasons, Christian festivals, saint or holidays. Sir John Lubbock was the first gentleman to put forward the idea of bank holidays in Parliament. He believed that workers' health needed to be protected and that a day off would benefit them. The Bank Holiday Act was passed in Parliament and brought paid bank holidays into society for the good of all. It could be said that Victorians promoted leisure time. During this era, industrialisation meant the working classes toiled long hours doing laborious work. Therefore, the introduction of paid holidays must have been a huge blessing to workers. Family and single persons could now experience a day out at the seaside. They would have been very keen to leave the dirty, smog-filled industrial cities they worked in on a daily basis. Taking advantage of Thomas Cook and Son, organisers of the first railway excursions by the way, many people would have flocked to the seaside and exhibitions. Coastal cities and towns like Blackpool, Skegness, Bournemouth, Brighton, as well as Aberdeen, grew larger thanks to the railways, bank holidays and working class tourism. The glory days of trying travel, however, did not last. By the 1960s, the beaching cuts led to stations being closed down and platforms removed across the northeast of Scotland. By 1973, Aberdeen had only seven railway platforms in use at its Guild Street station. And by the 1980s, refurbishment of the station led to a loss of a further two platforms as well as routes. The loss of these routes must have impacted greatly on the northeast of Scotland's tourism trade. Train travel, which had once opened up new vistas and experiences to the working class masses, led to a return of travel now being only for the rich. Paddle steamers, though, were also another popular mode of transport for holidaymakers. Those living or working on the west coast of Scotland could enjoy a paddle steamer day trip down the River Clyde to places like Rothsay and Dunoon. Meanwhile, here in Aberdeen in 1867, paddle steamers such as St Magnus, run by the North Company, advertised trips which served the Leith, Aberdeen, Kirkwall and Lerwick route. Visitors on board could enjoy a variety of foods, from soup to meat dishes and puddings like sago souffle, as they leisurely cruised along the northeast and island's coastlines. Handbook guides advertised summer cruises to Norway, also from Aberdeen during the 1890s. The Aberdeen Steam Navigation Company too, with their ships Loch Nagar and Aberdonian, advertised trips to London during the 1930s. Sailing twice a week from Aberdeen and London, each Wednesday and Saturday, from June to September, they catered for first and second class passengers. These holiday makers could enjoy a 36-hour 
journey to their destination in relative luxury. Those who could afford it bought a sleeping cabin and would enjoy a hearty breakfast on board if first class. Those in second would enjoy too a lovely breakfast, but not as extravagant as the first class. Dining saloons were on board each vessel, as well as cabins deluxe for the upper classes who could afford the most extravagant quarters while on board. One famous trip had just been recently celebrated here in Aberdeen. On the 11th of May, Aberdeen Football Club was playing against Real Madrid in Gothenburg and P&O Ferries had a ship named the St Clair, ferrying passengers and supporters to the match. Where to their delight, the Dons won the European Cup Winners' Cup final. In 1999, Sir Alex Ferguson, manager of the Dons, was then awarded the freedom of the city of Aberdeen. And in 2002, Aberdeen FC unveiled a statue named Fergie outside their stadium as an honour to their beloved ex-manager. So now, welcome to the silver city with the golden sands. Do you know, if you live in the UK, you are never more than 70 miles from the coastline? Aberdeen, during the Victorian period, attracted visitors from all over Britain. Thanks to the bank holidays, working folks came in large numbers to Aberdeen and its beachfront became a much-loved holiday resort. Folk flocked to take in the sea air, or bathe in natural spring waters that the city and shire advertised and promoted. For many, the belief that the sea air would invigorate health brought many to the seaside to share in its recuperative properties. During this era, a fashion for fitness and healthy outdoor pursuits was deemed excellent for one's constitution. Posters depicted trains journeying to spa towns and the recuperative effects the waters and air had on the body and the mind. The beaches were crowded as people enjoyed paddling in the waters or viewing the entertainments put on for their pleasure. Visitors would be dressed in their Sunday best, men adorned in suits, ties and hats, with ladies most probably sweltering in their long formal dresses. These formally dressed visitors would lay a towel down rent a beach chair if affordable and enjoy the outdoors with a picnic. Sunbathing was not the craze as it is today with holiday makers seeking sunshine broad breaks. Victorian decorum though meant most ladies had to change while swimming. Many used bathing carts which were situated or pulled down to the water's edges. There they could debark and jump in for a swim without anyone having seen their swimwear or uncovered skin. The better off would have been able to afford their own bathing hut and had them transported down to the water's edge, either using local brute force or horsepower. They would alight from their hut, have a swim or a paddle in the waves and re-enter their bathing station with no loss of decorum or a flash of one's ankles. Bathing machines were small wooden windowless huts on wheels that were used as changing rooms However, by the 1940s, these huts became old-fashioned. They sadly became victims of vandalism or exploration by children. Aberdeen wanted to ensure visitor safety while holidaying at its beachfront and employed lifeguards to monitor those enjoying the waters. One such gentleman, a Mr William Sutherland, a.k.a. Moosey, born in 1845, won many life-saving awards for aiding those in trouble near the city's beaches and rivers. 
Musi was a member of the D and Bon Accord swimming clubs and was involved in rescue missions not only at the beachfront but in Walker's Dam as well as the River Dee. It is claimed he saved over a hundred persons in his lifetime. His bravery and dedication to life-saving led him to be awarded the Rescue Service Award by Lord Provost Leslie in 1871, when Moosey was only 27 years old. Moosey sadly passed away aged 42 on the 20th of September in 1886. He is buried in an ornate grave in Allendale Cemetery with a wonderful inscription inscribed upon his tomb, recognising his gallantry in saving upwards of 120 lives from death by drowning. By the 1920s, the beachfront in Aberdeen was transformed by development. The harbour had been extended and with the opening of His Majesty's Theatre, the city was booming and a wonderful tourist destination. Railway posters and advertisements promoted Aberdeen's golden sands and its silver city. It became a must-see destination. Trams jam-packed to visitors and locals around the city and especially to the beach area. Queues snaked for miles as visitors sought room on the sands or a place to amuse themselves. The beach bathing station, which opened in 1896, for many it was the only place where they could enjoy a wash cheaply instead of sharing a tin bath by the fire at home. For others, it was a place to swim and exercise in the station's indoor pool, or if the weather turned, a place to find cover and enjoy the sea views. Many tourists, though, though they enjoyed the sea and fresh air, wanted to revel in other types of amusements, as well as the music and theatre hall type entertainment the city offered. From cheering on the dons in their stadium to screaming in fear and excitement riding on the wooden switchback roller coaster, people wanted this leisure time to be well spent and full of fun. The memory of their bank holiday day off had to last them until the next one came round. Visitors flocked to the circus to watch artists perform life-defying acts or giggle in delight at the clowns' antics. Others sang and jeered at the plays and spectacles in the theatre and opera house in Guild Street that perhaps Charlie Chaplin, as well as Stan Laurel, from Laurel and Hardy fame, were involved in. Another attraction that drew the crowds was the Beach Ballroom, which was erected in May the 3rd, 1929. It was hoped by the local council that the venue would boost tourism attraction and encourage locals also to visit the beach area. Its circular ballroom with its dance space could accommodate 1,000 dancers to its restaurant and tea room drew magnificent crowds and entertainers also. Posters declared the building as Scotland's finest social, dancing afternoon and evening. Did you know the Beatles, Van Morrison and The Who are some of the talented performers who sang and played here to the delight of Aberdonians? One can imagine his dance floor with his floating on fixed springs, shuddering and swaying under the many feet of its dancers as they boogie the night away. Did you know a fountain once cascaded water as its residence 12-piece band played in the beach ballroom? Aberdeen was now seen as a first-class resort and by the 1950s and 60s, tourists and locals flocked to its wonderful beach, especially during the July trades holidays. It is claimed that every hotel room in the city was full. However, this heyday of travel did not last. And during the 1970s, declining visitor numbers to Aberdeen's beaches coincided with the arrival of cheap package holidays 
to warmer climates. Today, though, though the crowds may not be as great as it once was during the Victorian period until the 1960s, it must be said that Aberdeen's beach is still loved by locals and tourists alike. So, as you stroll along the boulevard, sipping a hot drink or enjoying a cold ice cream with the waves crashing and the seagulls cawing and children's laughter as they paddle in the water is heard. It truly is a sight to behold, the silver city beside the golden sands. We hope you enjoyed Karen talking about the history of travel and holidaying in the silver city. If it's got you thinking about visiting Aberdeen and heading down to the beach, make sure you visit the art gallery to see our new exhibition, Making a Splash, a century of women's beach wear, where you'll see our collection of 20th century bathing costumes and accessories. Remember to hit that subscribe button to never miss an episode of Gone Around. Until next time, bye!